Amen. I'm excited for uh, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, a, a pastor uh, down the street. Pastor Gene Binder is going to preach to us this morning. And uh, yeah, you're, you're famous here. Uh, a lot of you know Gene because you've been to Israel with him, potentially. Um, and so he has been an amazing mentor of mine, friend of mine, and uh, we are really excited to have him talk to us about prayer and keys, apparently. So, yeah. Yeah. I am. I'm always happy to be here. Been in Boulder County for 30 years now and a lot of history with Boulder Valley Christian Church. Um, I've spoke here uh, several times, led I think two or three Passover Seders back in the day. Um, and I know a lot of you because you've been on trips with me. So I feel like I'm at home here. So thanks, yeah, thanks for the warm welcome, too. That surprised me. Like, people usually don't clap when I come up anywhere, so. Um, if you'd, raise your hand if you did not. Paul, are you here? Yeah, if you didn't get a key. <laughs> I would have I expected that, actually, so. Yeah. Keep your hand up. It's part of the, the message that's coming up here. I'm just going to play with this a little bit until it just is perfect. Oh, there we go. So I'm going to actually continue in your series on prayer that, uh, that you've been in here today. Matt asked me if I would do that. And this is actually a message. We did a series on prayer about three months ago at Cornerstone, and I gave this message. So it's only been dusted off once. But I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, we're going to look at a form of prayer called petition, which is really most prayers. You're going to ask God for something. And the subtitle of this message is An Intimate Invitation to Discover and Surrender to God's Will. And that's kind of the main point I'm going to drive home. According to one online dictionary, which is my source for all things, <laughs> kidding, a petition is a formal request or appeal, often for some kind of change made to an authority or organized body. I don't know if you've ever used change.org or have gone onto that website before. Anyone can create a petition there advocating for some kind of a local or global change on any particular issue. Usually it's some kind of a social justice thing. And then others can join in if they have like a particular interest in that, uh, what the petition is about. They can kind of sign the petition as well. And so numbers mean a lot when you start getting, you know, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people signing a petition. Most of the petitions on change.org are serious calls for social change, but some are a little questionable. For instance, a guy named Brandon Crane started a petition to demand that head and shoulders create a body wash called knees and toes. <laughs> and here's what Brandon said. Here's why he said he started the petition. The issue is pretty self-explanatory. The injustice of having only head and shoulders but not knees and toes has gone unnoticed for too long. But I say no more. Please, my fellow citizens, help me change the foundation on which our follicles grow, and by which our skin is moisturized. 
With your help, we can end the injustice of segregating our lower body. 338 people signed Brandon's petition. But so far, Proctor and, Gan and Gamble has remained silent to their demands, which really means the answer is no. Okay. So serious petitions on change.org are actually very similar in nature, if you think about it, to petitions of prayer that we make to God, where the petitioner makes an appeal to God for some kind of change or some kind of help in their life, and then often solicits others called intercessors to join in on praying to God on their behalf. And a prayer petition could be for a healing, a job, wisdom making an important decision, finding a lifelong partner, uh, really for anything. And once the petition is made to God for whatever it is, uh, then the petitioner must wait for an answer from God. And while waiting, he, can, he or she, along with the intercessors, can repeat the petition to God over and over again. Sooner or later, but hopefully sooner than later, an answer from God will be received. And which could be a yes because the prayer was answered favorably or no because it wasn't. Or could just be not yet, right? And there's really no, uh, it's a really very simple explanation of prayer petitions. So I'm done. Let's go have brunch. <laughs> now, I, seriously, I hope you noticed how uninspiring I described this type of prayer, all right? Because the reality is that for many people, uninspiring is how they experience sending petitions to God. And why is that? Well, for some, the problem simply boils down to the reality that when they pray, they often don't get their prayers answered favorably especially for the big things in life. And because of this, many feel it's just not worth their time and effort to pray. Think of it this way. If you put a dollar in the vending machine and nothing came out, how many dollars would you invest into that machine before you decided it's not worth your time to continue? I mean, you might bang it, kick it, rock it back and forth, right? But after a few fails, you're most likely going to give up. And keep in mind that prayer petitions are not bags of potato chips or Milky Way candy bars. They're real-life issues like asking God to save the life of a loved one or to provide a job to put food on your table. And so for many, even just one malfunction of that prayer vending machine can be absolutely devastating and heartbreaking. Um, I'm married to Andrea. We'll be married 50 years next April. I know, I only look 30, so. Um, but when our daughter Lisa, we lived in Southern California, our daughter Lisa turned 16, which is 35 years ago now. She had a major health event that took out her out of everything that she loved school, sports, acting, all her friendships. It was devastating at the time for all of us. And so Andrew and I made countless petitions for her healing and solicited dozens of intercessors to join us in our desperate prayers. But as the days and then the months and the years went on, she only got worse, not better. <clears throat> and it was a very difficult season of life for us. I mean, that's an understatement. It's, to this day, it was still the most difficult season in our life. I was a full-time pastor at a church in Southern California at the time. It's also working on a master's degree at a local seminary. Andrew is very involved in the church as well. And so because of our faithfulness to God 
In our involvement in the ministry, we believe that God would quickly answer our prayers. But we are dropping like dollar bills into that every several times a day into that prayer vending machine and nothing was coming out. We could kick it, shake it, rattle it. Eventually, I became very discouraged and skeptical about the effectiveness of prayer, which is not a good place for a pastor to be. And I know I'm not alone in this because I've talked to countless people over the years who end up in the same place for the same reasons. My message today is for everybody because I believe everyone in this room is going to be inspired and blessed by what I'm going to have to say. But this message is especially for those who have lost faith in the effectiveness of prayer, especially for prayers of petition, asking God for something you need. Now, to solve this low percentage of answered prayer, many Bible teachers teach that um, resort to teaching formulas or conditions that, if met, increase the odds of getting your prayers answered favorably. And there's good reason for this kind of teaching because there are several passages in the Bible that seem to suggest that if a certain set of conditions are met, then God will absolutely answer your prayers favorably. So let me just share a few of them with you. Matthew 18, 19, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything, anytime I see an absolute in the Bible, I go look it up. And I look this word up. Guess what it says? Guess what it means? Any guess? Anything. That's what it means. Yeah. If two or more on earth agree about anything, think about that for a second. They ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. What's the condition here? Two people agree on anything. What's the promise? You're going to get it. All right? Matthew 6, 6 through 8, Jesus said, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The implication is, you'll get what you ask for. What's the condition here? Pray in secret. What's the promise? God will reward you favorably. Luke 18, 1 through 5, my favorite, by the way. I love this. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God. I love this. He didn't fear God, nor cared what people thought. And there was a window in that town, a widow in that town, who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what anybody thinks, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, (laughs) I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. What's the condition here? Pester God repeatedly. What's the promise? He will relent and give you what you want. James 4, 2 through 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you do not receive because you don't ask with the, you ask with the wrong motives. What's the condition here? Have the right motives. What's the promise? You'll get what you ask for. One more. 
Mark 11, 22 through 24 says, Have faith in God, Jesus said. I truly, I tell you, if anyone see, says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So what's the condition here? Believe that God will answer your prayer. No, actually believe that God has already answered your prayer. The promise is he will do it. So Bible teachers like this take uh, conditional passages literally. But I want to suggest that these passages are not meant to be taken literally and often give people false hope when they are. I mean, just look at that first passage. Two people agree on anything. God will do it. And so all you need is two believers to agree on anything, and then God will do it. Does that happen 100% of the time? Anybody put that to the test ever? I have. 80% of the time? 50% of the time? I mean, who wants a winning multi-million dollar lottery ticket from yesterday's Powerball drawing? What, 600 and some odd million dollars? So please listen to this, okay? Because in the very same chapter, just a few verses earlier, Jesus said this in verse 9. He said, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. In another passage, Jesus says that if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And thank God we don't take these verses literally because we'd all be walking around blind with no hands. <laughs> Within a week, all of the passages I read promise a 100% effectiveness if we follow the conditions. And so logically, we must come to the conclusion, since they're not answered with that kind of effectiveness, we must come to the conclusion that God is either a liar or that these passages are not meant to be taken literally. Personally, I don't know about you, I don't believe God's a liar. And those of you who know me know that I have a very high view of God and the scriptures. And I'm very careful with the word of God whenever I teach. And one of the ways that I'm careful is I always filter everything through its Jewish context. If you don't know that, I'm Jewish. I was raised in a Jewish home. Went to synagogue the whole nine yards until I met uh, Yeshua at the age of 30. I didn't. I wasn't attending a synagogue way then. I was like a hardcore atheist. I was an atheist evangelist. I loved meeting people like you and telling you how weak you were, how you needed a crutch in order to live life, you know. But then God got a hold of me, kind of like an Apostle Paul thing. But one of the ways I'm careful is to be able to filter everything through its proper Jewish context. Since all of the authors, if you don't know this, all of the authors of the New Testament were Jewish, they wrote in the historical Jewish context of the day that they lived in, which means that those who listened to Jesus back then would have understood his teachings in the Jewish context with which these promises uh, 
were presented. Jesus was a rabbi to his disciples. And the main purpose of this kind of rabbinic teaching is not intended to promise formulas for answers of prayer on demand or to amputate body parts as a solution to sin. They are intimate invitations. Listen to this. They are intimate invitations intended to motivate their disciples to live radically by discovering and then surrendering to the will of God. And if you would just hang in there, I think you're kind of stuck for the next 10 minutes or so. I promise to connect all the dots by laying out what I believe is a solid foundation built upon the Word of God that will powerfully demonstrate how prayer, and especially petitions of prayer, are invitations to form this radical, intimate partnership with God intended to inspire us to live with unprecedented meaning and purpose. And so let's start this foundation by looking at what I believe is kind of the foundation stone passage on prayer on which everything about prayer must be built upon. And that passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 through 18. It says this. I'm only going to extract the part that's for prayer. Pray without ceasing, for this is God's will for you in Messiah Jesus. And don't miss that praying without ceasing is God's will. So whatever this means, it's a really big deal. You always want to pay attention whenever the word of God says this is God's will. Because you never have to guess what you're supposed to do. I wish it said it in every sentence, you know, then we'd know. If it's God's will, then it absolutely is something we should be doing. But again, if, if you take this literally, it would mean that we are to pray 24-7, 365 days a year, day, day and night, right? And so while at home, while eating our meals, going for a walk, at work, at school, reading a book, watching a movie, even while sleeping. And so rationally, the best way to interpret this is that prayer should be infused into every aspect of our lives. That's what it's saying. Prayer should be infused in every aspect of everything that we do, whether we're sleeping or awake. Prayer is a lifestyle rather than an agenda. Most people view prayer as, as an event to set aside on their calendar. I'll do it you know, every morning at 6 a.m. Or three times a week in the evenings at 7 p.m. Or whenever it works for you. Get it on your calendar, and even though it's perfectly fine to schedule our prayer times, I'm not saying anything against that at all. If this is all we do with our prayer life, then we'd be missing the blessing that comes from what it means, what it actually means to pray without ceasing. This is yet another opportunity to form a radical, intimate partnership with God. One that saturates, infuses every aspect of our lives, which in turn then profoundly affects how we live our lives. Jesus said this to Peter, and by extension to his disciples, and now to us. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys. You all have a key, right? The keys to the kingdom of heaven. Why don't you just hang on to that through the rest of the sermon so you can kind of fill your key 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this phrase, binding and loosing, would, would not be new to the disciples. It was used since ancient times to give rabbis authority to make decisions about interpreting the commandments in the Torah, in the law. And in that sense, binding equaled forbidding of something from the teaching in the Torah and loosing Loosing equaled approving of something from the teaching in the Torah. But this was just an earthly authority given to rabbis. As men of God, they did their best to discern what God meant by each of the 413 mitzvot, or the commandments of the Torah. But in this passage, Jesus adds a heavenly dimension to this authority. And this heavenly authority means that we all now possess keys to the kingdom of heaven. What do keys do? They unlock things, right? They unlock doors. And what door is being unlocked here? The door into the kingdom of heaven. You need to see how this too is a really big deal. Spiritually speaking, there's only two kingdoms in the universe. There's the kingdom of heaven where God resides, and there's the kingdom on earth, the kingdom of earth where we reside. And oh, how blissful life would be if you and I could easily navigate between the two. Maybe you've heard the, the phrase thin spaces. That's used when the distance between heaven and earth narrows. And it's during those moments you sense God and the Holy Spirit and their presence in ways that you can't otherwise. How blissful it would be if you and I could easily navigate, not just make it narrow, but actually penetrate into the kingdom of heaven. But spiritually speaking, the door to the kingdom of heaven is locked, preventing anyone from having full access to God. But Jesus has given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which provides us with unceasing, unhindered, 24-7 access to God, resulting in a promise that whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And what exactly does that mean? Well, Jesus said it this way in John 5, 19. This is the best way to understand what loosing and binding means. In John 5, 19, which is my life verse. I mean, this is, this is the verse that inspires me every day of my life. Jesus said the Son of the Son, meaning himself, can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. You need to understand when Jesus left the kingdom of heaven, he left all that deity stuff behind. And he came here as a man. You can read in Acts chapter 14, how he did everything he did, he did under the power of the Holy Spirit, just like you and I. And this is an amazing passage with profound, profound implications. Jesus had an unceasing, unhindered, 24 access to the Father, a two-way communication line between him and God. And because of this, in every waking moment, Jesus prayerfully sought out God's will. What do you want to do today, Dad? 
Where do you want me to go? Oh, you want me to go to this city? Who do you want me to touch? Oh, those lepers over there? Okay. What do you want me to say? You're healed. The kingdom of God is near. He did nothing on his own. I looked that word up too. It's nothing. It's like Jesus is saying, let all my prayers and actions on earth be a result of my never-ending conduit for discovering your will in heaven as it should be here on earth. And this connection is offered to us. This is why when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are ambassadors of the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. And because of this incredible connection to the Father, Jesus was always prayerfully dialed in to the Father's will. And he lived his entire life with unprecedented meaning and purpose. There's only one moment in his life where he lost his connection to the Father, the unity he had with the Father. You know what that moment was, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time he was disconnected to the Father's love. That's the brutality of the cross right there. Let's keep, keep building on this foundation. Luke 11, 9 through 10, Jesus framed this intimate imitation another way. He said, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. To one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock, ask, seek. Knock. This is not a formula to receive favorable answers of prayer. This is an opportunity and an invitation to discover God's will in any and every situation. Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened. This is what it means to have an unceasing, prayerful lifestyle. The Apostle John said it still another way. This is 1 John 5, 14 through 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever he asks, we know that we have what we've asked of him. And so when it comes to understanding God's will in any situation, including making heartfelt petitions of prayer, ask and receive without ceasing. Seek and find without ceasing. Knock and open without ceasing. Are you starting to get this a little bit? So if you watch NFL football, and you probably know that in between plays, the quarterback often has radio contact with the, with the coach. And... Uh, in between plays, the quarterback is, is, is he's getting, uh, the coach is, is, is calling plays, right? What do you want to do? 
on the next play? Well, I'll run a reverse flea flicker. What about a Statue of Liberty? How about a sweet pass? I throw a Hail Mary. Got to get religion in there a little bit. That's how it is. Ask without ceasing. What's the next play, Dad? Seek without ceasing. Show me what to do now. Not continually. Open those doors. Come on, let's go. And throughout the Bible, we discover many people who live their lives with this unceasing, prayerful way. People like Abraham and Sarah. Think about that. Childless. Prayed for a child, prayed for their whole marriage. Never gave up, even in their old age. One day, God says to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you a child. Your family will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Can you imagine? They're, they're 74 and 75 years old. <laughs> Probably toothless. Not very romantic. <laughs> it took another 25 years before God delivered on that promise. You think they were praying? Think they maybe gave up a little bit? That's why Sarah was laughing. How about Joseph? His brothers were jealous of him, and he's the first person trafficked in the Bible, by the way. Did you know that? They, they sell him to a, a passing caravan and uh, put him in a barrel and sell him, and then he ends up in prison for, I don't know, like 15 years, 12 years. He was only 17 when they trafficked him. 12 years in prison. Can you imagine how all that trauma affected him? When he was released, he gained favor with uh, the king of Egypt. And when he finally saw his brothers for the first time, you remember a, a famine makes them come to Egypt to literally beg for food. And they're, they're afraid because what's he going to do to us? And this is what he says. Satan, Satan made this, meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph recognized God's will in the midst of his trauma and suffering. Or Deborah, who became one of the judges of Israel in a time when women were considered property owned by men. But she just ignored the glass ceiling, listened to God's will instead. And Deborah became one of the most successful butt-kicking judges that ever lived. Talk about unprecedented meaning and purpose. Or how about the man born blind in, in uh, John chapter 9? Remember this guy? He's, he's blind since birth. And now he's an adult. Can you imagine being blind in that culture back then? There was no ADA. There was you know, no ramps. There were, the streets were uneven. It must have been horrible to be blind in that culture. And in, back then in Jewish thinking, it's not biblical thinking, but in Jewish thinking, it was like if somebody's had such a life like that, somebody had to have sinned. Who sinned that this man was born blind? So they asked, was it his parents or was it him? Which is kind of weird because he would have to sin in the womb in order for that to happen. But Jesus says, nobody sinned. And listen to this, what he says. I mean, just feel the pain of this guy for what, 20, 30 years being blind in that culture. Jesus said, but this happened 
that the works of God might be displayed in his life. You could substitute the word will for works at the will of God. All of these men and women tapped into their unceasing, 24-7 prayerful, prayerful, direct access to God. And because of it, experienced unprecedented meaning and purpose in their life. Jim Elliott was one of five people during an, uh, killed, slaughtered during an attempt to share the gospel with the Harani tribe of Ecuador who at the time was an unreached people group. And Elliot professed faith in Messiah at the age of six, and his parents encouraged all their children to be adventurous and to live their lives fully for Christ and for God's will. And so there he was, and to say that Jim lived an adventurous life would be a gross understatement. Um, Google his name if you're not familiar with his story. It's an amazing story to read about. I'm certain that Jim and the other four people often made prayers of petitions for protection to God while in Ecuador because they always wanted to put God's will ahead of their own. Sometime, but they were slaughtered, and sometimes after, after their death, Jim's Elliot diary was retrieved, and this is one of dozens of quotable quotes found in it. He wrote, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. I mean, he wrote this while he was in Ecuador, knowing that any moment their lives could end. This is what it means to pray continuously. Wherever you are, be 100% in it, in the moment. You realize the moment is all you have? Do you know that? Oop, and it goes by quickly. See? We're already in the next moment. Actually, we're in the next thousand moments that already passed. Some of us are stuck in the past, and we have regrets, and some of us are paralyzed by the future. But really, the only thing that's real is the moment. Wherever you are, whatever moment you find yourself in, be 100% in it. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. Years later, the entire tribe all came to faith in Jesus, and they said the reason was because of the faith of those five men, even to the point of their death. One more story, then I'll wrap it up. Jesus, at some point, in his third year of his ministry, realized his life was coming to an end and began to share that with his disciples. And he calls them together for what became the Last Supper. Sadly, over history it got missed that it was a Passover Seder. Small detail, since he's the Passover lamb. But in any case, he shared that he was going to be slaughtered. And he was during the same time that they slaughtered the lambs for Passover during, during that window of time of 2 to 5 p.m. in the afternoon. He was slaughtered. He took his last breath at 3, I believe. 
And so knowing his time was short, he shared a traditional Passover uh, Seder with his disciples. Little did they know that it would be their last meal with him. And um, at the beginning of the meal, Jesus says to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal before, with you before I suffer. I eagerly desired. Why? Because this is why he came to earth. He came here for that moment. I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. But what happens after the meal, right? They get up and they walk into the Kidron Valley and up onto the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, go, you guys stay here. I'm going to go pray. And what does he pray? I don't want to do this. There's got to be another way. And he does this three times. I don't think he's doing it three times to pester God. I think he's doing it three times because that's how many times it took before he said, yet not my will, your will be done. Jesus was never more human than in that moment. That was Jesus with cold feet, by the way. So don't feel bad next time. You don't want to do something. But hopefully you'll say the same thing. But not my will. Your will be done. All right, I would like the worship team to come back on stage. Now, if you guys wouldn't mind. It took many years before God began to heal our daughter. Oh, it's just painful to think about. About 10 or 12 to be exact. Slow, very slow healing. Today she has a wonderful life here in Boulder as a therapist has four beautiful grandchildren that she's given us. And uh, those were really difficult years for Andrew and I. But it was during those years that we began to understand the deeper, more mature purpose of prayer that I've shared with, this, shared with you this morning. Ask without ceasing. Seek without ceasing. Knock without ceasing. Never stop asking others to agree with you. Never stop seeking to have the right motives. And certainly never stop knocking at the door to pester God. Come on, God. But you've been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven to open that door. A two-way telecommunication to God. An intimate, unceasing invitation to discover and surrender your will to God's will in every situation of your life. So what I'd like you to do is, if you wouldn't mind, just stand up. I'd like to finish with a little exercise that we do at Cornerstone often. I think you do it here too, Electo Divina. And if you just would hold your key up during this exercise, just to know that you've got the keys to the kingdom Maybe keep this around in your pocket or your purse for a few weeks as a reminder somewhere where you'd see it. I hung mine on my mirror in my bathroom because I look at myself a lot. 
I'm just kidding. That's the first place I go in the morning. Like, oh my gosh. And I'd like us to read something. I hope you can read it from your heart. And we're going to read it three times, and each time at the end I'm going to give you something to think about. All right? So let's read it first. Ask, seek, knock. Wherever I am, I want to be all there. I want to live to the hilt every situation I believe to be the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done, God. Think about how our lives would be different if we lived this way, just for a moment. Let's read it again. Ask, seek, knock. Wherever I am, I want to be all there. I want to live to the hilt every situation I believe to be the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done, God. Now ask God to help you knock down the obstacles in your life that would keep you from living this way. Fear. Success. Security. One more reading. Ask, seek, knock. Wherever I am, I want to be all there. I want to live to the hilt every situation I believe to be the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done, God. And then lastly, believe that this is God's will for your life. Just acknowledge to God that this is how he wants you to live your life. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room because this is this is the this is the hard journey to take for us all. There's so many things to distract us and obstacles in our way to live a life like this but it's the way you built us we're made in your image you imagined us and you when you imagined us you envisioned a life for us all the days written in your book for us were written before the beginning of time before any of them came to be and you have an adventure for us all no matter what stage of life we're in, whether we're young or middle-aged or older, whether we have kids, we don't have kids, whether we're single or married, Lord, you have a plan for us to live wild and freely, living every moment that we believe is your will, like Jesus lived his life. May you help us do that. And I pray this in the powerful name of our Messiah, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen.